Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This is Ahmed Zappa. You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology, the fucking best show there is. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Oh, to live on Sugar Mountain with the barkers and the colored balloons. You can't be 20 on Sugar Mountain, though you're thinking that you're leaving there too soon, diggers. Such is life, right? Hey, hey, everyone. Christian Swain here, the rock and roll archaeologist, uncovering artifacts, digging deep to tell the full story of music in the latter half of the 20th century, doing it right here at Pantheon HQ in San Francisco today. All right, let's get going uh, and do this. Uh, once again, thank you, Diggers, for supporting all of our shows here on the Pantheon Podcast Network. We had over 121,000 downloads or listens, if you like, in October. <laughs> wow. Uh, you are all sincerely telling all of your friends we are greatly humbled. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, 27 shows and counting bringing sweet treats uh, to the world of rock and roll, if I can steal a line from the rock candy ladies. And if you don't like it, fight me. Uh, let me quickly highlight another show this week, uh, the No Filler Podcast. Twin brothers Travis and Quentin may live 2,000 miles apart, but that doesn't stop them from sharing and talking about music as often as possible. One day, they decided to turn on some microphones and hit record. No Filler is a music podcast dedicated to sharing the often overlooked hidden gems that fill the space between the singles on their favorite records. In each episode, they'll dive into a little history of the artist and the album of choice with snippets from interviews and concerts as well as music from the album itself. It's a fun and interesting podcast, as are the hosts, Travis and Q. 
Uh, I've been enjoying this one lately, and I think you guys should give it a try. Please let us know what you think. Okay, hey, uh, check out the Pantheon website at pantheonpodcasts.com. There's a new host page with pictures of all the mugs uh, that host the shows. Yes, you know, put a face to the voice. Please go check that out. And while you're there, if you're up to it and can afford a ducat or two, please consider supporting the network by clicking the listener support tab. You can either buy some swag on TeePublic or become a patron on our Patreon uh, page. Okay, that's it. That's the business. Let's get to the show. I lit up from Reno. I was trailed by 20 hands. Didn't get to sleep that night till the morning came around. Sit out, run, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight, just might get some sleep tonight. Ran into the devil, baby, lonely 20 bills. Spent the night in Utah in a cave up in the hills. Get out running, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight, just might get some sleep tonight. I ran down to the levee, but the devil caught me there. Took my twenty-dollar bill and it vanished in the air. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Grateful Dead biographer Dennis McNally. Now, I love Dennis. I think it's fair to say we've become friends, uh, especially since we see each other, uh, along with his wonderful wife, dead photographer Susanna Millman, uh, they're inseparable, all over uh, Bay Area music events. He and Susanna are always nice and generous with their time. But the real reason I love Dennis so much is that he is a real life rock and roll historian. He has a PhD in U.S. history from Amherst. Uh, He's also the biographer of Jack Kerouac, author of On the Road, you know, the book that fueled the counterculture. Uh, It's almost the boomer Bible, for Christ's sakes. Writing the book Desolate Angel, Jack Kerouac, The Beat Generation in America, got him noticed by Jerry Garcia. Uh, And in the end, that got him a job with the traveling circus. Um, He was the Grateful Dead uh, publicist from 1984 until just after Jerry's uh, passing in 1995. Originally, he was brought in to write the official biography of the band. (laughs) But in true deadhead fashion, once he got on the train, that first mission got pushed to a back burner. Uh, Finally, after leaving the PR for the band, uh, he was able to focus. And in 2002, he was able to publish the definitive um, uh, book, A Long Strange Trip, The Inside History of the Grateful Dead, as well as uh, several other books on Jerry and the band. Um, Finally, the book uh, was also a primary source for the Amazon six-hour documentary of the same name, directed by friend of the show, Amir Barlev. He also uh, has written a well-received book on Highway 61, Music, Race, and the Evolution of Cultural Freedom, uh, published just last year. He is also on the development committee 
of the ACLU of California and is on the board of directors of the San Francisco Zen Center. We discussed all of this uh, in our sit down. So uh, let's get you all to hear the tales. Diggers and deadheads, I give you Dennis McNally. Chugging, got my chips cashed in. Keep chugging, like the doodah man. Together, more or less in life. Just keep chugging, on, on, on. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Dennis McNally. Thank you, sir. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for welcoming us to your home. Uh, we're going to talk about mostly you uh, and how you kind of fit into this cultural question of the second half of the 20th century, um, the counterculture, uh, and your writings on that, which includes a lot of the Grateful Dead, but a lot of other things as well. So um, my first question might be, in uh, mid-October uh, of this year, St. Anselm College in Manchester will host a long, strange trip, the culture of the Grateful Dead. Uh, the event will feature panels and discussions uh, that touch on subjects such as how this iconic band with songs like Friend of the Devil and Terrapin Station influenced pop culture as well as the drug culture. And this is more than 50 years since the band's inception and almost 25 years since the death of the de facto leader Jerry Garcia passed on. Um, in fact, uh, since then, there's been no new Grateful Dead music uh, that's been released officially. So today, how would you describe Grateful Dead culture? Uh, thriving, booming, uh Actually, my first reaction is, how come I don't know about this conference? <laughs> you um, should be there. You should I, be on a panel. <laughs> you know, well, why didn't they uh, invite me? Gee, I'm feeling slighted. No, um, uh, actually, I was the keynote speaker and deeply involved with a giant one of those three-day thing at uh, UMass where, where I went to school. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was four or five years, six, seven years ago. I don't even know now. Um, you asked me the state, the current state of yes, Grateful Dead culture. Yes, it's bigger than ever. Something very weirdly interesting happened. In uh, 2015, we had Fare Thee Well concerts uh, mm -hmm. where the band... Uh, officially know, said Officially goodbye. said, you know, we, we should do one more you know, last fling. Um, well, two last flings, but sure. Well, five shows. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what happened, I realized afterwards, I had always assumed that with the death of Jerry that you know slowly gradually the this deadhead would thing would fade mm -hmm. just because everything fades um, and what I discovered what I think happened in particular uh, at Fairly Well is that deadheads took possession of the music in a way uh, they'd always had but they said they basically said fine if there's no band left um, it's not we're not fans just of the band we're fans of the music and it it's merely a matter of taste who plays the music, mm -hmm. which is why there are five dead cover bands in every town in America. 
Uh, there are more, I would wager to say, and I think I know what I'm talking about, there are more deadheads now than there were in 1995. And they have the same values. They get it just as much. I mean, I went to a J-Rad show. Uh, Joe Russo's Almost Dead, uh, which I happen to really like a lot, uh, at Frost Amphitheater. And the age range was precisely the same as any Grateful Dead concert I was at. Mm -hmm. And the vibe and the, 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 what I overheard in talking with people, you know, much younger than I, um, they, they understand. The, the Grateful Dead brought two unique things to American music. One was that they fused rock and jazz in a way that no one ever has. Um, there are other improvisational bands, like for instance the Allman Brothers Band, were brilliant improv improvisers, but they were almost 100% blues-based, and yeah. you know that's great music, but, but The Grateful Dead put this weird melange of, of all American musics into a pot, fired it up with improvisation, and came out with something truly unique. Plus they had the only lyricist that can compare to Bob Dylan um, Robert on board, yeah. uh, the, late, the late and very great Recently Robert Hunter. Departed, um, and um, so, you know, it's a good combination with a, with a, a genius guitarist and, and uh, all the rest. That's A. B, in ways that were quite largely uh, created by the audience itself, uh, but set, the, the parameters of which were set by the band and the various decisions the band made. Um, they created a community at, at a time, well, community's always attractive. Um, it, 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 it's all, I think it's always rare, really. Genuine community, genuine feeling that you can walk into a room of, with 20,000 people in it and, uh, and trust every one of them within reason. And they did that, we did that, by the time I became an employee, by demanding things of the promoters of these shows that respected um, uh, the, the audience in terms of benign security, uh, uh, pouring millions when you didn't have it into a sound system, um, both for the intellectual thrill of knowing you've got the best sound system on the planet, but more importantly, because that's the way they communicated to, to the, the audience. audience. Yeah. And that was, that was respect for the audience. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the lighting didn't matter, although, in fact, the lighting was frequently brilliant, and as Garcia once said, Candace Brightman asked for an increase in her budget, and Jerry said, I don't know what they're doing looking at us. It's probably her lights. Give it to her. Um, <laughs> Actually said, it. well, I probably can use so-called curse words on a podcast. Yes, but, you can. But at any rate, I'll, I'll keep Feel that free. in mind. So, uh, but th those two things, this unique music um, that demanded an involve, a certain involvement from the listener. Um, the, the, one of the most interesting moments, and it wasn't really successful musically, but, uh, but it was fascinating. Uh, one of the most interesting moments I ever had in a Grateful Dead concert was Jerry, uh, clearly with no rehearsal, that's why I say it wasn't successful musically, um, started playing a song that the band, to the best of my knowledge, had never played before, which was the reggae song, uh, Stir It Up. Uh -huh. And they were coming out of uh, space, and he just went there. And very gradually, everybody sort of fell in with him, um, 
as I said, since it hadn't been rehearsed, they didn't quite know what they were doing, and he wasn't. I don't think he sang. I don't think he sang anything. It was just an instrumental. Um, but what was fascinating, among other things, was that they were literally we were watching something completely new, being um, invented, being right invented there on the on spot. Stage. I mean, or semi-invented. I mean, the song had been invented, yeah. and the fact was that the audience was going ballistic because they recognized that it was new. The whole point of theatrical rock and roll is, um, and, and I'm not particularly putting down people, who, if you do it well, you do it well. But the point of, uh, say, a Def Leppard is they are trying to the best of their ability to play note for note what they put on the record. They got it right on the record, the audience loved the record, they're trying to get, and the audience has the expectation of hearing those songs played that way. The Grateful Dead and Deadheads, um, the Grateful Dead, A, said, and you know, that, that they were incapable of playing it the same way twice. It just wasn't in their DNA. Um, and the audience didn't want... So they want, made the strength of that. <laughs> and the audience didn't want to hear it the same way tw twice. Um, I never saw, and that goes back, you know, this, the set list, you know, changed every night. And I might add, they went out on, with the exception of one brief period where they were breaking in a new keyboard player, um, they went out on stage without a set list. And, you know, they had this uncanny ability, Jerry and Bob being the, the lead vocalists, to remember who had started the night before. So if Jerry had sung the night before, he'd look at Bob and say, what? You're up. <laughs> and Bob would say, let's do, and they'd go, that. And, and unless the drummers went, now nah, we don't want to play that. You know, generally speaking, um, they did that. And it, which, by it the followed. way, is all happening musically. It's not an actual. Oh no! I vocal mean, at least for the first song, it, it could actually for the first song and for the first song of the second set, it would be a, a, a verbal. Uh, uh, like okay, this one's okay. Well, this one, you know, yeah. we'll start with this, and and um, and sometimes they'd like uh, at intermission they'd sketch out. All right, we'll do these three, and to know, get going, and then and we'll then. see. Right, right, right. Um, but the the point being that. Um, there's a great line that I quote a lot and it's because it's accurate. Is that David Freiberg, uh, who was the bass player for Starship and, and uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service and whatnot, s said of the Grateful Dead, I love watching people jump off cliffs uh, musically um, because, of course, uh, and this is my addition, um, sometimes you fly and sometimes you end up on the rocks. And I've seen them end up on the rocks. But the fact is that it's that adrenaline and that risk-taking that, um, to me, makes the music interesting mm -hmm. uh, and, and creates the potential for magic. And that's why Deadheads you know, went to five shows in a row or a hundred shows in a row, whatever. Hoping um, to catch because, that one. You know, oh yeah, yesterday was like only okay and today is really bad, but you know, maybe tomorrow will be fabulous. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I've Hope seen them about, uh, you know, between 20 and 30 times. And I, I would say about uh, uh, a third of them were uh, okay. A third of them were not great. And uh, a third of them were amazing out of this world. Uh, and, you know, uh, early on I'd scratch my head and said, how, how is this the same band from the band I saw yesterday? Uh, I don't get it. But, but to your point, it is. Uh, it, it's a high wire act. It's, um, uh, you know, it is sometimes uh, that uh, the flying Wallendas will succeed and sometimes they will 
they will fail they will and fall. Not. Right, 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 right. So let's let's get the the story of the beginnings of the dead, and that will get us to the beginnings of your story as well, because those things are combined uh, in a way, and that's a mutual appreciation uh, to Jack Kerouac. Uh, that's kind of how you uh, came to the attention of, of, of Jerry Garcia. Yep. You had written uh, Desolate Angel, Jack Kerouac, and the Beat Generation in America. Why is On the Road uh, so quintessential to the baby boomer generation like yourself? I've done hour-long lectures to answer that question. And, and you know, we, 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 uh, neither of us have the time. Um, Maybe in our future 10-part series. There you go, Um, and we'll work that out. Just remember that in 1957, you're on the heels of a depression, a giant uh, world war Mm -hmm. that that involved the coordinated uh, operations of literally millions of people to defeat genuine evil, Mm -hmm. unquestioned evil, uh, in in Hitler. Um, And um, a Cold War that followed on it, uh, and McCarthyism, all of which rolls up, and then Great Prosperity, which partly was a consequence of, of the GI Bill and, and World War II. And so the, the end result was in 1957 is basically the American culture was frozen. Um, for those of you who have ever seen Leave it to Beaver or shows like that, the 50s sitcoms, Father Knows Best, um, people kind of believed that that was reality. Okay, that was, that was the secret... You know, they, you know, this world where there were no black people, there was no incest, there was no alcoholism, there was no, you know, all the problems were minor and easily resolved. Dad was wise and, and you know, Could mom be done stayed so in, in the 22 kitchen. minutes, right. 22 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and among other things, you know, what happened in the 1950s, among other things, was, uh, for instance, um, the word, the phrase uh, "under God" was added to the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm-hmm. Um, the slogan on the dollar bill went from um, "E pluribus unum," which means uh, "among many, one," mm-hmm. to which is inclusive, to "In God We Trust," um, uh, by by a vote of Congress. Um, there was a a frozenness. The prosperity was great; everybody liked that. No, you know, no, hardly anybody objects to prosperity. But the price for that was conformity. And it was among the most conformist periods in America. Any, anybody that, that deviated from the norm was slapped down hard, mm-hmm. um, whether it was sexually, racially, etc. And again, not, not to dive too deep into it, but I find that interesting because the Cold War enemy at the time was, was uh, 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 couched in those exact terms, and and you know, and that, that's and that, that's, that's that mostly are. just good old good old irony. Yeah. Um, if if you, when you set yourself up, it's an old slogan about uh, when you set out to uh, you know kill the enemy, dig yourself two graves. Yeah. Um, and the the fact is that uh, the more extreme um, the side effects of the Cold War and McCarthyism became in terms of conformity, as you say, the more we resembled. You know, our enemy. The, our, our enemy. That's a, a line out of a Dylan song, too, the, uh, from My Back Pages. Um, so up steps this guy who's written a book about doing things, about listening to jazz. It was very jazz-based. If you mm-hmm. just go yeah. through it and look for the jazz references, it's He was a big fan book. of Charlie Parker. Right? Yeah, uh, Charlie uh, Parker yeah. and you know, just lots of, all jazz, really. 
Um, and it was about freedom, and it was about um, you know an appreciation of America from an immigrant. I mean, he wasn't his parents were actual immigrants, and and he was he grew up in an immigrant Kerouac grew up in an immigrant uh, community, and uh, on the road was this celebration of um, the potential of what America could be. And it basically boiled down to spiritual freedom, combined with, with Howell, with Al, his friend Allen Ginsberg's yep. poem, Howell. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have these two voices basically standing up, and, and the message that people got was, the emperor has no clothes. This country isn't perfect. Um, and the idea that you, know, that, that you will be beaten if you don't agree with that is wrong. And uh, it punched a hole in the American consciousness because, I mean, it's it's an important book, but part of it was that that the the landscape that it landed on was so sterile and so, so troubled um, that... You know, this was this was maybe one candle, but but you know, it was in a time of real spiritual darkness, mm. um, and people read it and went, "I'm out of here." Janis Joplin read it in Port Arthur and said, "I am so out of here." Uh, Jerry Garcia had the advantage of reading it in San Francisco, uh, <laughs> getting it at City Lights, um, and he adopted it as his role model for the rest of his life, which, as you say, is why. I wrote a book about Kerouac and, and um, sent it to him. Um, and in the course of writing the book, I wanted to write a book about the Grateful Dead because I saw that they were all connected. At any rate, the, On the Road was a bombshell. And, yeah. and it was, um, uh, he, he, he wrote better books, um, but it captured the zeitgeist of mm-hmm. America in that moment. Or, the, the or at least the, of the youth. Of what people, young people wanted mm-hmm. in that way, even though he... He wasn't even entirely aware of it. He was a visionary. Well, uh, I mean, isn't that the promise of America? Life, liberty, and the pursuit, pursuit of, of happiness. happiness. Whatever go. the and, fuck that means. And, and uh, you know, Dean Moriarty and Sal Par- Paradise, in particular Dean, um, captured all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it rang. It, it resonated in, in ways that we're still feeling. Right. Okay, born in 1949, um, uh, getting you into the leading edge of the Boomers Club. Uh, you grew up the, the son of an Army intelligence officer, mm-hmm. uh, and that during the, this exact Cold War that we're, we're talking oh, about yeah. here. So how did that shape your early life? Uh, well, I was trained early to never give any information to anybody uh, on, uh, on the street unless they were um, a police officer wearing a uniform, and even then, be careful. Um, well, you're not doing a good job of that today. Uh, no, oh no, no, I've been <laughs> I've been violating that for ever since. Um, it was, you know, part of being a really good intelligence officer is that you tell your family as little as they need to know. True. Um, so it wasn't as though I was, you know, hyper conscious of that stuff. I picked up stuff here and there. Um, what I knew was that, among other things, was, was was the the best lesson I got from him was watching television uh, and watching a crime show in which a guy would tail somebody, you know, through across oh, the city. Okay. Early, early uh, police uh, dramas, know, any uh, of those procedurals. Okay. Mm-hmm. And my father would, would laugh and say, <laughs> you know, 
if we really seriously want to tail somebody, it takes three cars, two guys in each car, um, so that the second guy can get out and follow on foot if that's necessary. And that's round the clock, so it's eight-hour shifts. So you're talking about 18 people to seriously trail, tail one person. It was a great reality check right. on all that stuff and on the fantasy that almost everything you see in the movies or... or, or so that's you know. twice you've brought up that early on you recognized or were taught that TV is bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, and I never did, you know... I watch TV sports. It's I, I, that's about I, it. I can't. I, well, my wife dragged me into Game of Thrones um, at the end, um, and it it's good fantasy. Um, but uh, yeah, no, uh, it's that world, that prepackaged uh, world. Um, yeah, was was far as so. That that's that that was a takeaway. I think you also traveled a lot too. I, well, in particular in Germany and, and around the United States, mm-hmm. yeah. I went to, I think I counted, I went to 21 schools. Oh, uh, wow. By the time I graduated high school. Wow, wow. All right, another book that you've written, Highway 61 Revisited, Music, Race, and Evolution of Cultural Freedom, is also a, a story of the beginning of the rock and roll era uh, and informed the latter half of the 20th century. Would it be fair to say that American culture since the end of the Civil War is about how white America deals and accepts African Americans into the complete social fabric? It's a huge chunk of, of the process. Um, uh, so I wrote Desolate Angel about the kind of the 40s and the 50s in America, and then I wrote The Grateful Dead book, which we'll get to in the 60s and 70s. Um, and when I was near the end of the Grateful Dead book, I said, okay, what's, what's next? Because um, actually, because I'd had a really terrible postpartum depression when I finished the Kerouac book. I didn't, I, I didn't really? know that I was going to be able to do the Grateful Dead book. And, and it's literally postpartum. You know, you've, you've, I, at that point, I had seven years of having this project and being engaged. Yeah. Well, this started off as your little, dissertation for yeah. your PhD, I believe, right? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I was, you know, totally absorbed in it for seven years. And then suddenly it's over and it's like, what do I do what with my next? life now? Right? What is going to happen with my life? Coincidentally, I turned thirty, so it was oh, that, that doesn't help. Symbolic <laughs> thing. Um, and uh, so, when I was near the end of the grade, I discovered uh, and made the logical uh, uh, leap that uh, the way to avoid postpartum depression is to stay pregnant, which is to say, to have another project yeah. before you're done right. with the, the last one. Just figure the second act out the back, before the first one ends. In the, you know, in the back of your mind, you don't have to be working on it. You just have to think about it. So I did and um, decided that what I really wanted to do was to trace. Well, it was open-ended, and it took me two or three years before I even realized what I was writing the book about. But what it turned out to be was simply what led up to Kerouac and all the stuff that happened after World War II. So I started with Thoreau. With with, I started with the corporate, with the origins of America, which for me are not, you know, when I was in graduate school, I was taught um, that, you know, the soul of America was forged in the Federalist Papers, the, the conflict between Jefferson and Adams, between the, you know, the, the, the rural smallholder and the mercantile um, New England, New Englander nonsense. America was created by Alexander Hamilton's bank mm-hmm. and the origins of the corporate state. And it's been corporate state ever, ever since. since. Yeah. 
Um, there are two kinds of freedom in America. Economic uh, freedom? The freedom to make as much money as you possibly can, as, as in our, our dear leader. Yeah, that's pres- guaranteed. The current president of the United States. And I believe until, that is the religion of America, but sure. Well, a lot of Americans, yes, um, uh, and and of course, it's it's the the gripe of the people who vote for Trump that they're being left out of that process, which is what he capitalized <laughs> on. Um, and then there's intellectual freedom, uh, which is evoked for me by my favorite hero, uh, picture over there, uh, Henry David Thoreau. Um, who um, was so far ahead of his time that, frankly, nobody really understood, had a grasp of what he was talking about until the 1960s because he rejected conventional religion, American exceptionalism, uh, and our relationship to nature um, and said, you know, we, we are part of nature, um, contrary to the entire history of the Judeo-Christian tradition. So, Oh, dominionism, uh, I see, yeah. So... Um, uh, Thoreau, so I start with Thoreau, and the interesting thing about Thoreau is uh, that uh, his most of his social worldview was shaped by Civil slavery, War. opposition mm-hmm. to slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a part of the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. He escorted, uh, escaped uh, slaves, um, took them from uh, one train station and um, got them to the next to uh, on their way to Canada. Um, and then I talk about uh, Mark Twain, who was deeply affected by the Fisk Jubilee Singers, among other things, um, and and his recognition that he'd been, a, you know, he was raised a normal racist uh, Missourian of the 1840s and 50s, um, and um, grew in somewhat more enlightened as time went by. Certainly and, for its age. For his age. For his age, yeah. considerably. Um, Huckleberry Finn is a masterpiece for a number of mm-hmm. reasons, one mm-hmm. of which is that it, 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 it's totally um, about the humanity and the intelligence of a black man. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it goes, and so then I, I get up through uh, the 1890s when African-American culture, one generation after, the civil, after freedom, um, spins off uh, the core of all American music since. Yes. Um, whether it's the blues or ragtime or uh, uh, gospel, all of it, uh, you know, it, it's 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 the most creative uh, thing. And white people, starting with ragtime in particular, um, glommed onto it, began to adopt and, uh, and the the African American culture. It's such an irony because um, literally there was a dance fad in 1912 all across America. Uh, based on ragtime, and it involved people hold, touching each other while they danced, which was new, mm-hmm. and which was shocking, and which had ministers frothing at the mouth. Um, and and um, the irony, of course, is that one of those dances was the fox. They all had animal names. I do not know why. <laughs> there was the bunny hug and the, and the grizzly bear or something or other, and the turkey trot and the fox trot, uh, the turkey something or else. Um, and of course, my parents danced the foxtrot, and I thought it was the lamest thing I had ever seen in my life. And it was fascinating to go back and realize what that meant in 1912. Uh-huh. And, and um, if you ever saw uh, one of my favorite childhood movies, uh, The Music Man, uh, where Professor Harold Hill 
is scaring the snot out of the, the good citizens of River City to, so they can con them. Um, and he talks about ragtime, shameless music, um, uh, that, that uh, is the cause of all the problems. Uh, and that Meredith Wilson actually captured in, in, in that lyric um, a perfect summary of what the national reaction to um, to ragtime was, except well, one of the national reactions. The other was let's dance, and, right? And they did, and, and they did, and yeah. they've been listening to. Uh, and for the next fifty years, they listened to African American music. Yeah, uh, they may have called it different. Uh, they may not have let well, African Americans play play it. No, <laughs> um, they had to have but, white people playing it in some time, like like the swing bands. Um, it, one of the very few arguments I ever had with my editor of my Grateful Dead book is when I talked about um, how uh, uh, white kids did not listen to Duke Ellington, the bulk, did not listen to Duke Ellington or Count Basie. They listened to Glenn Miller. They listened to Tommy Dorsey. The, the music was segregated. Um, and it was when Kerouac got down in New York in prep school and, found, and was taken, had a, a hip friend take him to see Jimmy Lunsford at the Apollo that he started realizing and he was a serious jazz fan in high school uh, in Lowell listening to what what was what was popular and and suddenly he's finding the roots of it he's just the cutting edge of the of what happened to all the white kids in the 50s who first listened to um, with the spit curl uh, Bill Haley um, and uh, and then discovered that the real deal was uh, was uh, Chuck Berry, Chuck Berry yeah, or yeah, Little right, Richard, yeah, and yeah. and on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, okay, so again, we, 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 we mentioned that you were a bit of an army brat and that you've got to see quite a bit of the country as you were growing up. I think you spent time in Southern California oh, yeah. uh, for a bit, too. Painf so Painfully. Painfully, so that wasn't a great experience. In oh, no, no, no. I, I no, I, well, remember, I'm from San Francisco. I, I'm paid. I'm, I mean, I, when you when you move to San Francisco, you have to sign citizenship oh. <laughs> papers that that acknowledge that you loathe Los Angeles. Uh, I okay, joke, I went through that myself. I, yes, I, I, I joke, am an but, honorary Northern Californian. But even I was born in, in fact, Brandon. I was living in this very, 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 very boring suburban area of, of, of the San Fernando Valley, like the, the far reaches of the valley, and um, and. Uh, this is before, I might add, this shows, shows you how old I am. It was before the invention of the catalytic converter. And so oh, the smog, the of, smog LA. of L.A. was a real thing. So, no, I, I didn't really care for, for, uh, for L.A. so much then. So what, what, what were some of your favorite places uh, growing up? Germany was cool. Yeah. Uh, although, I, I mean, I, I, it's weird because we lived in Castle. I, I still, I mean, this is 1957 when we got there and... and there was still a lot of rubble, a lot of bombed out yeah, places, yeah, yeah. and uh, and that was that was strange. Oh yeah, it um, took it took almost thirty years for most of Europe to to get back in the game. Long time, mm -hmm. and this was only you know this is twelve years after the war had ended, um, and um, I you know it's just a, I was just a kid. Uh, everything you know it was my life was my nuclear family because. Um, uh, we had extended relations, but but uh, you know we were military, so we weren't we were next to them. So um, uh, I I uh, well well twenty I got to twenty three high schools is, in 19, is, is that what you said uh, uh, schools in general yeah. elementary oh, 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 uh, twenty three high school yeah. um, and then uh, but you know I, I mean I got to San Francisco 
to research the Kerouac book in 1974, and... You said, this is the place. Within 10 minutes, I said, I think this is it. You think you're home. Okay. Uh, it was home. All right, all right, all right. So when did you first realize that your love of history uh, and that this might be your path in life? I had a great high school history teacher um, that I was very fond of, um, um, Ted Clark. And Ted, um, the late Ted Clark, and Ted, uh, he sort of got me started. And then um, I, I went to a college in upstate New York, St. Lawrence University, and it had a fantastic history department. I didn't know that when I was going in. It wasn't as, the, the care with which people now select their colleges and apply <laughs> the, I didn't know. I, you know, I, I knew I wanted to go to a college that was far enough away from home that my father couldn't pop up without my knowing about it in advance. Um, it was eight hours hard drive across the northern New England to get to, to, from Maine to uh, upstate New York. Um, but it turned out to have a wonderful history department, and I got you know, deeply engaged um, with that. Um, and then so I decided to go to graduate school, and uh, again, I, I went to UMass because it only required one foreign language. So languages are not your no, top skill. No, no. I, 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 um, somebody once theorized that, you know, I learned German when I learned English um, because we oh. had a, a German um, cleaning lady. Uh-huh. Um, and um, came back to the United States and lost the German. And they theorized that I was probably for a brief period very confused, particularly because we were in the Deep South and I, I don't think I knew the accents and whatnot. And I've never been able to learn a foreign language since that would really stick so so the answer is um, but again it turned out to be the perfect place for me right. uh, most notably um, a guy named Steve Oates who's a, a master biographer um, and um, it, when I said I'm going to do Kerouac a lot of graduate schools would have said no you're not you know that's too recent and he's too he's pop and no uh, go do diplomatic history that's more sound <laughs> Um, and I, you but, professional historian, you and yes. and you know if you're going to be a professional, <laughs> um, And uh, fortunately, Steve said, "Great idea. Mm-hmm. Nobody's done it." Mm-hmm. So. Wow. So, like um, like many of our, our rock and roll heroes that we look at on this show, um, Lennon, uh, McCartney, uh, and even Jerry. Um, in childhood, you lost a parent. Uh, and while it was undoubtedly a, a horrendous moment uh, and experience, it appears to change one's track in life. Um, how did losing your mother, I believe at 12? Yeah, 11, yeah. 11, uh, change you and, and your life now looking back at it 60 years on? Well, I was really socially retarded um, and really un- un- all the kind of... I was. Uh, I went to a, a high school that was in a really small, xenophobic um, town in the backwoods. My final two years in the backwoods of Maine, um, and I was a pariah. I mean, at the time, um, I mean nobody. Even the cheerleaders will tell you a little, that they had anxieties while they were in high school, <laughs> but but um, but. Um, I, I, you got I, a, You got a bigger share than I most. got. A, I was the only person in my graduating class that hadn't been there all four years. Mm-hmm. That should tell no, you something. Yeah. We're talking. We're not talking about a, a place that outsider. Where they, and I read books at 
what? Yeah. And so, so, um, so I, so I, and in fact, even through college, um, uh, the, the, the kind of intimate relationships and those all night, you know, important conversations that you have, um, I didn't really get to until after I got out of college and, uh, and found my first intimate friends, not necessarily physically, um, uh, in graduate school where I, so I started, like I say, I, I, I was really retarded. Um, and, uh, but that came, you know, finally, thank God, uh, in, in, when I was in Am uh, UMass uh -huh. and, um, live with a group of people, most of whom I'm still in touch with. Uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, changed my life. Okay. All right. So your dad goes from spy to theologian. That's well, an interesting He became change. a Unitarian minister, and, and, and you could really argue about that, the theology of Unitarianism. Um, he'd always had a spiritual drive, and uh, when he um, retired in 1963, yeah, we moved to Maine, and, and uh, that's what got us to Maine from, yeah. from L.A., yeah. and um, he became a minister and was a good one. Well, you, you're, you're on a spiritual path yourself, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a practicing Buddhist, and I, I, um, I had an interesting conversation with my sister uh, about that. Um, I, I said, what do you think our father would, would have said about me be, becoming a Buddhist? I, and I, my reaction uh, was, you know, that I was straying from the Judeo-Christian path, and, which he referred to. Uh, as his, uh, as what he was up to, although Christianity in terms of the Trinity, you know, was not, Unitarians are not Christian in that sense, um, and nor was he. Um, it was the only argument I ever won with him. Um, but um, at any rate, uh, so I said, and I don't think he'd approve of all this. And my sister said, no, the fact that this is, I mean, this is something you do an hour every day, and that that you know you're deeply engaged in. He'd have been over the moon over it. And I said, "Well, we can't ask now, but but you know, thanks for that opinion." So, so, <clears throat> so from your dad, it seems you've taken away some uh, some things like um, uh, you know this intelligence. This uh, obviously to to work in the intelligence services, you you have to have that to begin with a little uh you know uh, a dedication to 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 craft uh, uh if you will um, but really quickly go just going back to your mom what what do you think you took away from her oh I, oh tenderness i hope um uh she was very smart um this is a woman who was diagnosed with cancer we came yeah. home in germany when we were I believe. and um she died in 61 uh, but we came home and in the last two years of her life when we came back to Los Angeles um, she started college um, and uh, was on the honor you know it was Dean's List um, even as she was dying which mm -hmm. is something that I've always been extraordinary you know, extremely mm -hmm. proud of um, uh, to be associated with her um, I only remember her being really really mad at me once which I deserved I was like being a young Twerp, um, and um, she just uh, she had a wonderful manner about her, and uh, a gentleness, she made me, she made, she, a, a gentleness, a sweetness, and um, she sure made me like women. <laughs> okay, all right. So you have a PhD in history from Amherst, uh, and I'm pretty sure this makes you 
the certifiable rock and roll archaeologist. Well, so welcome to the club. Thanks. <laughs> but I, th- I think the question is, um, how did that pre- prepare you for becoming the Grateful Dead's official historian? Well, as I say, I. So I went to. Uh, I was from Maine and then upstate New York. I missed the '60s, basically. Uh-huh. I mean, I saw, I read about it. Mm-hmm. I remember, but you didn't engage in it. Uh, I didn't engage yeah. exactly, um, even though you were of the age. I was of the age, but I, it was removed and it was far away. And uh, um, I caught up with things like like the psychedelic experience only later. Later, in I think that, 1972. Yeah, uh, right. At my first Grateful Dead show. Um, and which is why I think that I've you know spent the rest of my life um, sort of studying the fringes of society because I didn't get I, I you know I didn't get to experience it, um, and so I've been studying you know what I missed, um, and wanted to, and wanted to make sure that that story is told and and, and in a in a reasonable way and and held uh, for future people to you know particularly now at a time when. When the one of the things I witness is that is that that um, the issues of the '60s haven't gone away at all. You know, they've evolved. We went from the I, I, I say we're still battling the issues of all the of 60s. the issues, and and you know, right now, for instance, when the EPA says, "Oh no, let's 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 loosen all the standards," um, then you then you think, "Oh, you know, God, was was there any point?" Um, but the fact remains that that um, uh, you know. Hopefully, what that's one election away from from changing, and and uh, those sorts of issues are, are you know are the the life issues. So um, I, uh, as far as being the Grateful Dead's historian, as I say, I I, um, I was sitting around three in the morning in a uh, in graduate school my first year, and I had decided that I would take control of the academic process. Um, because I discovered that it, it wasn't scholarly, it was training. Graduate school is training. You were being trained to be a historian. It was not, it was, uh, you read a lot more books than the average McDonald's fry cook, but the fact is you're being trained mm-hmm. to work on the assembly line. Right. Which I didn't care for. Um, so one of the ways I tried to take control of it was to pick a dissertation topic, and I, I mumbled something to my, my buddy Chris about, uh, maybe I'll do the beats. And he said, you should do Kerouac. His papers are at Columbia, and you can stay with my friends in the Bronx. Um, now, broke and graduate school are synonymous, which is to say I, I had no money, and the idea of having a free place to stay in, in New York Sounded on great. the subway line. <laughs> yeah. And coincidentally, my parents by then had moved 20 miles from Kerouac's Lowell. So the universe was saying, uh, study this, Jack Kerouac. This should work out, right. Um, and I started. And uh, that fall, he took me to, Chris also took me, you, we, we may deduce that Chris had some influence on my life, um, the late, wonderful Chris Burns. Um, and uh, uh, he took me to my first show and, and uh, gave me my first hit. And I, you know, so by like 73 or 74, I was uh, saying, uh, okay, I want to do two books. I want to do. Kerouac in the 40s and 50s, and the Grateful Dead in the 60s and 70s. What I perceived then to be the counterculture, which 
That's that, that, that you lead right into my next question. So in, in 72, you begin graduate school. You right. see the Grateful Dead. You take acid for the first time. Uh, and um, so what I want to know is did you immediately recognize that the culture surrounding the band uh, was innately connected to the beat generation, which was now your prime suspect uh, for dissertation. Well, let's put it this way: within a year, I had I had seen all those connections, and 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 um, there was also um, a book called uh, Terra. Well, signpost uh, Garcia signpost to new new space. Did you ever see that? Is in fact was a long. Uh, interview of Jerry Garcia by um, Jan Wenner and um, Charles Reich of Greening of America. Mm, mm, mm -hmm. um, and uh, Jerry talks about his, uh, you know, Kerouac. His, his and, love of Kerouac. Well, and, and the fact is that you've got a song, the other one, about Neil Cassidy. Yeah. Um, so there were interconnections. Um, so I... I I saw you could that. see the in, the interest was mutual. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know there there was a very conscious and you know as you the more you you study and you know you realize that the that Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder and Michael McClure were were on the stage at the B in uh, along with the, the rock played, bands. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know I mean this stuff is connected. So uh, I decided I wanted to do the Grateful Dead book. I didn't have a faintest clue of how to get to them. I mean you know. It's, the only band in the world with an unlisted number. Um, and I um, uh, sent a copy of the, book, the Kerouac book when it came out in 79. I'd moved to the Bay Area. And um, uh, I sent a copy of the book to Jerry uh, and to Hunter um, uh, via the Grateful Dead uh, fan post office box address. Um, and then... That was it. I had no clue what next. <laughs> and eventually... Um, Long story short, I, I, I did connect with people who worked in the office, um, who, and I ended up being in the same room with Jerry Garcia, and uh, though the putative topic was something else, I said, by the way, I wrote a book about Kerouac, and I sent it to you, did you get it? And he went, you wrote the Kerouac book? And he hopped up, and he got very excited, and, and uh, um, uh, a couple of months later, again, long story short, um, he sent some people to me, and they said, Jerry wants to know, why don't you do us? Why don't you write a book about us? And I tried to play it cool. Wow, the plan and, really worked. And Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and the plan was to get in front of... I'd written an article about, uh, the, Grateful Day, about New, um, the New Year's Eve ritual. Um, and um, it was in the Chronicle, the local paper. And um, they had a Sunday magazine called California Living at the time. And he had just seen the article I'd written because, you know, it came out uh, at, during this run of shows mm -hmm. um, at the Warfield Theater. And um, anyway, um, so they said that, and I said, well, gee, uh, that sounds interesting. I'll give it some thought. And <laughs> then I went home and got really seriously plowed. And, and uh, you know. We're happy as hell because happy this hell. is what you wanted to do. I've been waiting the second for act was now set. It was now set. Oh, you were pregnant again. I was pregnant again and worked for three years and then um, on the book. And um, Yeah, and just, just to let our audience know, you start this in 79, but the book doesn't even come out till 2001. This is, right. and we'll get into that. But. Well, 
Um, I can tell that very very quickly. So I started, no, actually I started the book really effectively in January of 81. Mm. I was invited to, to be the biographer in December um, of 80. And uh, researched, I had a part-time job, which was enough, and I researched for three years. And then uh, in 84, I was really financially, you know, needed, needed uh, a job. And coincidentally, um, Rock Scully, who had theoretically done publicity for The Grateful Dead, um, <laughs> Theoretically, because Rock That's, was that wasn't, I wouldn't call that his forte. Adult, well, he was, he was a little addled at that time. Details were not his strong point. Um, inspiration was. And um, so he went away for a rest, and um, the, um, the uh, receptionist at the dead office, uh, the band had company-wide meetings regularly, and um, the receptionist said, um, what are we going to do about the, the publicity? Because... The media calls me, and I pass the message along to Danny, and Danny doesn't return their calls, uh, which wasn't a criticism of Danny. That just He had enough to do dealing with what he dealt with. Um, and uh, what are we going to do about it? And Jerry said, get McNally to do it. He knows that shit. Now, I had never been a publicist, obviously, but I had done a press tour for the Kerouac book. But more importantly, um, it wasn't quite as casual as it sounds because I'd spent, in effect, three years um, being evaluated by everybody the office, the crew, the, the band, and I hadn't pissed off anybody too much so that I was reasonably trusted by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I went to work for them. And for about three months, six months, I tried to do both. I tried to work on the book and be the publicist. Now, before you say, but anybody could get publicity for The Grateful Dead. They were, you know, the, the answer is yes. The question was trying to hold, you know, deal with the onslaught, not generate new. That's true. I, totally different job. I started right. in a very different place than any other publicist ever, probably. Um, yeah, you weren't you but, weren't on the the incline. No, no, no. Uh, to I, build. Was, I was at you the, were I was at you the were top in the crazy having, part. <laughs> at the crazy part, at the top, having we're talking you know, Beatlemania here. <laughs> a waterfall of requests and demands and ideas, you know, raining down on my head, and. Um, uh, I work, you know, I worked a sixty-hour week when we were on on at home on the road. It was much more, um, and so after about six months, I I um, I threw in the towel and said, "Look, you know, you can't do both." And and the mindset, you know, of being an honest historian and being a publicist advocate um, was it didn't work. Um, so I got an Jack Kerouac-style nickel notebook, and I put it in my back pocket to write down funny things whenever anybody said something good. Um, and for the next, uh, that was in uh, early 85, so the next 10 years, um, uh, until Jerry died, uh, you know, it, it sat on the back burner. I right. thought about it, I sketched out things, but, but and then um, for the two years after Jerry died, I basically felt like I was trying to hold the whole of Grateful, you know, Deadhead's world together. Um, and finally in 97, I said, okay. And I went back on halftime with the dead, with Grateful Dead merchandising, um, and um, spent three years redoing all my research, re-interviewing a lot of people, you know, digging Doing the academic stuff. part. Right. Um, 
And yeah, the book came out in, finally in 2002. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you came on uh, in the mid-80s, just as this band born in the 1960s, and without much of a way of hits or exposure um, beyond yeah. their little corner of the subculture, is about to hit absolutely big, which is weird, crazy. So why, why do you think the band did hit so big in 1987 within the dark? Oh well, God, I you know I could I seriously could give a half an hour lecture because I was deeply involved uh, in that. Um, I could I could give a a, a really lengthy lecture um, on why. First, it was that a good moment. rock and roll song. Yeah. Secondly, um, the 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 record company went all out because, as Clive Davis Arista. Mm-hmm. Uh, said to his uh, senior people, "You have to kill for this record." because we may never get another record out of them. <laughs> Remember, we hadn't given them a record in seven years. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, third, there was an enormous reservoir of goodwill towards Jerry, which had been um, called into play by his near-death experience yeah. with a diabetic coma in 86. Mm-hmm. Um, fourth, they re- it was well recorded, which is to say they, they, um, they, they recorded it almost live, um, with baffles and this is and that, um, and did not get bogged down in the studio as they usually did because they hated the studio. They needed an audience. Didn't have to be a big audience, but they, they needed an audience. But they were, and all of them were healthy, happy to still have a, 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 a band. You know, it was just, it was sort of perfect storm. Um, and we, we, you know, we promoted it intelligently. We did there was some very weird things that I did. Uh, we were on the cover of Forbes magazine, um, which sort of alerted the rest of the media that, holy God, something really strange is happening here when Forbes puts the Grateful Dead on the cover. Um, and, you know, from there, and then it just it took off. And, I might add, this was the, the height of MTV, mm-hmm. and they did yes. a, brilliant, a brilliant video for yeah, MTV. Yeah, they did. They did. Uh, yeah. for, for Touch of Grey. Uh-huh. And but, all all of it together. So that's one side of the coin, uh, you know, the the performers, the you know, the the band uh, yourself, uh, this machine that is is forward facing. But, but at the same time, I mean, this this period, this uh, album, uh, really, again, to use the academic word, hits the zeitgeist. So well, what about the other side, where where you know, where is where people just just you know, insatiated for getting back to the quote-unquote garden? Well, nostalgia, is, there's a pinch of that uh, in, in everybody's reaction to the Grateful Dead. But no, um, it's, it's, it's a little simpler in some ways than that. And that's this. You are living in the age in which the, 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 the spokesperson for the era, Ronald Reagan, the president, yeah. other than the president, was Gordon Gecko, oh, Michael Douglas saying yeah. greed is good, yeah. and then you have this circus, this Tunerville. Tr- it's not the Rolling Stones circus; it's the Grateful Dead circus. It is a, uh, it is it is human. It is uh, off the wall. It is stoned. It is sometimes silly, um, sometimes brilliant. Um, and it is, but it's the circus. It's the last uh, chance for American kids at that time to run away and join the circus. Yeah. To quote Garcia, which is a reliable source, um, 
Deadheads are like people who like licorice. Not everybody likes licorice, yeah. but the people who like licorice really like, like licorice. licorice. Right. And and uh, are and just in terms of the growth of the audience in that seven years between 1980 when they put out a very slick album called Go to Heaven, which flopped, um, as most of their albums did, uh, and In the Dark, we per we uh, permitted taping, and that uh, taping, which was org it was I mean we had tolerated it, but we we. We segregated them behind the soundboard so that, so that the sound mixer could actually see the stage because there were so many mic stands in front <laughs> right, of them, you right. couldn't. Um, and, uh, and that trust, because we said, you can do that, but don't do it for money. And as far as I know, nobody, I mean, it really was on. So yeah, it was that a bond. It was, yeah. And it was and a trading system. It uh, was a, yeah. and it, it enlarged the community massively um, because. Suddenly, the ideal, the cassette, the 90 minute cassette was the ideal method, the ideal envelope for, for each that music. Set, right, right. For each set, uh -huh. instead of a record with 20 minutes left. <laughs> We're starting to clear our throat at the end of 20 minutes. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Okay. All, all right. All right. That's good. So it exploded. And, it's, and it did. And, and then, beyond all that, The Grateful Dead is the only phenomenon I've ever heard of, musical or otherwise, in which for 30 years, it grew every year, sometimes a little, sometimes a lot, but it kept growing. So uh, you are the publicist through these heady days, and, and while the next albums didn't make the impact that In the Dark did, uh, the circus was still as big as ever and grew and just got even crazier, right? Even after the death of Brent Midland, who was integral to that 80s success. So my, my question is, were, were you actively working on Long Strange Trip as you were dealing with this giant machine now? Uh, the short answer is only very slightly. Um, I um, tried, after I became the publicist, which was in 84, I tried to do both for about six months. And what I discovered was that it was impossible um, for two reasons. One was that the, the, the mentality of being an honest biographer and historian is not the same as being a publicist. Not that I told very many, if any, lies as a publicist for The Grateful Dead. The, the truth was much weirder than anybody else's <laughs> yeah, um, you know, lies. Um, what I, um, but the point is, is what you leave out. And, and um, so that constricted me. But more importantly, frankly, it was a 60-hour-a-week job. It was a great job. It was the best job of my life. But it, it was work. Right. I mean, I was dealing with 100 phone calls a day. Poor, pitiful me, but, you know... That adds up to a lot of phone calls, um, and I, um, I, and that's when I was home on the road was worse. So the the, the fact is that I, I simply I wasn't capable of doing both. Mm. Um, so uh, early in '85, I said, forget yeah, it. Yeah, no, you know, no, no, put, no. Put this no. on yeah. on the back burner. Just do and, the notes like you said. And yeah. I kept yeah. notes on the, the the good stuff, and mm -hmm. a lot of the of the uh, interlude chapters are. From that era, where where you know that's, I, so I thought about things okay, yeah. and the the although I had I had this the sketch, an outline, 
Uh, you know, it, it obviously was modified over the years. So no, uh, I couldn't do both. And uh, the circus and the, you know, the, you have to understand, I mean, one of the best things, <laughs> this is going to sound funny, but one of the best things that ever happened to the Grateful Dead was that um, when they went in to do um, Built to Last, uh, the, the next album after right. Touch of Grey, uh, fortunately, they got uh, they did the typical Grateful Dead thing, which was since they've had this tremendous success doing it one way, which was to say taking well well worn material and and um, kind and of recreating it, a live and experience, doing it right? live and just you know not getting bogged down in the studio. Nah, they did exactly the reverse. They never were all in the studio at the same time for Built to Last. They they shared tapes with each other, and it was just it was like you know somebody would lay down a basic track and. It, it, and it was built, built up that way, which, um, I mean, there's some interesting, terrific song. I mean, you know, Standing on the Moon is, is a masterpiece, uh, yeah. but um, Built to Last is not, is not at all bad. But um, the fact is uh, that uh, it lacks that last little sparkle that, with the Grateful Dead, only can come live. And, um, and uh, thank God it was... You know, only moderately successful. Because yeah. if we'd been any more successful, <laughs> we would not have been able to tour anymore. As it was, every yeah. show you guys that were we getting did, shut down. Right? Every well, we were. It's not so much shut down as, for instance, we couldn't play the Greek in in Berkeley anymore. We simply couldn't. I mean, the number of people it was, and that conveniently Shoreline opened up, and you know, even though it's lacks the. The ambiance of the Greek. Um, I mean, you know, being able to look out over the bay and see the bridge. It, oh it yeah, you, a, it's it hard was to our beat favorite. That. It was yeah. our favorite place, and and uh, I think, and I, I know I'm not the only one. And um, so anyway, and, and this was happening in various places, it, but it was basically from '88 on. Um, any show that that didn't have some kind of uh, problem with um, with too many people there um, uh, was a rarity. Was a, was a was a rarity, and was you know was like we escaped one. We escaped really again over wow. and over and yeah. over again. It was it was a yeah. grind. Yeah. Well, you had a lot of new uh, fans, uh, and and some of those fans weren't there necessarily just for the music. They they came for other reasons and what what as 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 somebody out in the parking lot uh out in the stands at that time uh, you know i could see a, a a different vibe it was a completely different vibe the the to that point people had become deadheads in this organic process in which they were introduced to it almost almost always um by somebody, yeah. an elder sibling or whatever. Mm -hmm. And implicitly, whether they were aware of it or not, uh, in addition to being turned on to the music, they were turned on to a code of ethics about how you acted and how you, what a, being a deadhead was supposed to be about. Um, these people heard the song on the radio and said, oh, I like that, you know, that's interesting, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go to that show. And then they found out they can't get in because it's already been sold out. Yeah. But they go anyway just to see... And they walk into the biggest, especially if you're 19, 20 years old, the biggest party they've <laughs> ever seen. Yeah. There's, there's uh, people of an attractive gender, mm -hmm. whatever your flavor. There's drugs. There's nitrous. There's, you know, food. 
there's oh, places it, it, to it's, gather. It's a town. It's literally it's a, town. A, a city. And it's a fun town. <laughs> yeah. Yes, fun town. So what's not to like? <laughs> so the problem is that we went from having 500 people without tickets outside our shows to 5,000, and you can't. That's called overloading the ecology. You simply can't function. Mm-hmm. It was to the point where you know people with tickets couldn't get into the parking lot because it'd be full. Mm-hmm. So they're parking. You know, they're clogging up the neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. It created all kinds of problems. So, uh, yeah, I, I just. It's too bad that certain events had to occur to change things, such as the death of Brett Midland. Uh, that began to change uh, how uh, how the dead uh, was perceived out there. Those records began to, you know, change. Um, uh, and I, I guess my point is is that some of these people drifted away, which was good. Uh, that but, would be okay with me, but I didn't notice. It, it, mean, it just continued to it, really. It so it was just it was no it, there was no change no, in terms no. of audience um, uh, overload. There was no, and and then of course we got to the last tour, which was literally the tour from hell. Yeah, in which yeah. all kinds of things happened that were um, kind of, that all the good karma, uh, all the bad karma that we ducked for thirty years on the road. There had never been. A Grateful Dead concert um, that was like canceled or whatever because of, of uh, crowd behavior um, uh, until uh, 1995. That last tour was the like, last tour was yeah it, was brutal. I saw I saw uh, one of the Shoreline shows uh, uh, on that last tour and and I, I walked away kind of going hmm I think they need to take a break. Clearly, um, and and you know, Jerry's, Unfortunately, Jerry's body decided for him. <laughs> yeah. On August 9th, nineteen ninety-five, Jerry passes, and by all accounts, that should be the day the music dies. Um, but that's not what happened, and and I, I don't want to get into the the horrible event or the whys, uh, the circumstances, or, or any of that. Um, you know, he unfortunately dies at fifty-three. Uh, which is horrible in and itself. But I'm more interested in hearing how and why you think the music just, it didn't stop. It just kept on going right through Jerry's death. Uh, It sort of goes back to the quote, I'm I'm sure I said it when we first talked, which is, um, Jerry once said that deadheads were like people who like licorice, you know. Not everybody likes licorice, but they really like licorice. But the ones who do really like licorice. Yeah. Um, they did not want to let and again, the Grateful Dead were two things boiling it down. Music and community. And 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 there's just not a lot of spare community around and, and you don't want to let go of that. So nobody did. So um, they did not, you know, over the next, say, 10, 15 years, uh, what happened is that, you know, people sort of relaxed. Eventually, and I'm not sure where this came, it became obvious after 2015 and fairly well, when they had their 50th anniversary um, celebration and, and, you know, sort of to put a, an exclamation point on the whole thing. <clears throat> and what happened, what I realized, what I finally realized by six months after that, was instead of ending, 
which I had expected. I just thought, you know, all things must pass, and, yep. and, and it would just dwindle away. And I realized that, you know, it wasn't going away, and that, that the, and every city in America had 16 cover bands. You know, I exaggerate, but, but I mean, cover bands. And, and, and some very good ones. And some wonderful ones. Oh. Um, and what happened, Dark Star Orchestra sort of came along and occupied one wing of things. Um, and what I realized, what I came to realize was, in, in, punctuated by Fairly Well, is that when the you know, band officially stops, is that um, the Deadheads had taken possession of the music away from the band, or not away from the band, but you know, in conjunction with the band. It was their music too. And it, was, it became sort of a matter of preference and taste as to who you wanted to hear play it. And so there were Dark Star Orchestra people. Now there are Dead and Company people. There are J-Rad people. There are, uh, there are people who swear by the Garcia Birthday Band in Portland, uh, Oregon, which is, which is uh, one of my favorite bands. Um, Bruce Hornsby said that Grateful Dead songs were like hymns, which is to say they endure, they are part of people's psyche, and they, uh, they, people want to hear them. Um, and, and, you know, the format in which they hear them is, is a matter of, uh, you know, of almost of happenstance. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and th that community, I mean, I work with, uh, uh, Skull and Roses, which is this uh, festival down in Ventura in yep. April, um, and it's about recreating or continuing, furthering the the nurturing the community, and you know that hasn't changed. And I'll add that I, I went to see J Rad, um, that's Joe Russo's almost dead band, at um, at uh, the Frost Amphitheater. Yeah, um, and. I, the audience range, the age range of the audience was precisely the same as that of a Grateful Dead concert 25 years before, mm -hmm. which is to say people as old as me and 18-year-old kids who were acting. And yeah. I talked with some of them, just as much deadheads as, as ever there, you know, ever there it were. It could have been 1972 all over again for and, these and, kids. And yeah. these people were, you yeah. know, weren't born for 10 years uh, until 10 years after Jerry died. <laughs> yeah. So, I know. It's, you know, it's just it's 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 astounding. It is astounding. Uh, to to see that. But I think we're on to something here, and that is the it, it's this community that really is unique and exists in that world. And whether it was intentionally built or or not, it was definitely not intentionally built. <laughs> it, it it became this thing. It became uh, one of the one of the things Jerry kept saying. And partly that, that was a very convenient way of disavowing responsibility, which is, of course, his specialty, yes. um, was, uh, you know, we didn't create this, you created this, you being yeah, the deadhead. The, the audience, yeah. That's, that's partly true. Um, and, and there's some other side effects. You know, they were the last man standing, quote unquote, um, in terms of San Francisco... 60s, uh, 60s counterculture. Counterculture yeah. bands. Mm -hmm. And yeah. as a result... They inherited um, a whole web of associations and values um, of peace, love, you know, etc. Uh, that that um, uh, is in short supply. 
uh, to put it mildly, and, and is cherished. I mean, you know, people, it was a very special time. And they acquired, you know, they inherited, I mean, they were an essential part of it. But as I say, they were the last ones to represent it. So there was that. Uh, but it was, you know, it was and is, it is. a genuine community. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I'm, you know, I mean, I, I'm the living example. I, I, I met my wife. Yeah. Um, and and uh, her daughter. Susanna Millman, uh, famous photographer. Grateful Dead yeah. photographer. Well, she had some access, you know. She was mm -hmm. fooling around with the publicists. So. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, and, you know, I met through Dick, we were introduced by Dick Latvala. Right. Um, the, the, of Dick's picks and the, the archivist um, and on and on and on and on I mean you know a, a significant chunk of my life um, to this day is people I know because of the Grateful Dead mm -hmm. um, and and it's you know I, I, I completely understand it. it's, it's hard satisfying. to quantify it's hard to put into even words because it is it's almost like a, like a fantasy novel world build, you know, it, 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 or, or a sci-fi movie yeah, or what yeah. you, it's this, it's very it's, much sci-fi it actually elements. sits in this world all on its own. Yeah. Uh, and it continues to revolve and evolve uh, here. So, so by 2001, you have left the 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 company uh, you you no no as I, the, I, I as went the to publicist half -time. you went to halftime I went to halftime yeah. so, so you did, could focus on on the book right um, actually in 1997 um, after two years of whether I was doing anything or not thinking that I was trying to hold the whole culture, ship together the whole yeah. ship together yeah. with others of course yeah um, I um, I said okay you know I want I, I'm going to go on halftime. Um, and um, and uh, work on the book. So I I went back and re-interviewed almost everybody, or certainly in the band, and and uh, um, did an enormous amount of you know it had been 15 years since I had, uh, you know uh, started, or at that point almost 20 years since I'd started. Um, anyway, and and um, wrote, edited, um, and. Uh, went through a hilarious circus uh, in terms of selling the book. Um, I had a, I had an agent uh, who was a, a legacy from my Kerouac book, uh, my uh -huh. first book. Yeah. Um, and he had turned it over to a, a young man in his office who politely didn't know what he was doing and, and um, came to me and said, I, I, nobody wants this book. Um, and I, I, well, I'll tell you a little bit of the story, which, which was simply, and my wife, quite rightly, said, you have to get a new agent. Well, I've never fired anybody. And I might add that uh, I've spent all this time around a band in which wives, whenever, whenever anything goes wrong, it's, you need a new manager. You know, that, 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 that's a fairly common... Right. Um, uh, Rock comment. and roll trope. It's yeah. a trope. Mm -hmm. It is definitely a trope, and um, but finally, you know, it was like, well, I guess I have to, um, and we, thanks to her, and thanks to Stacy Kreutzman, who is who uh, is a book packager and designer and whatnot, she said, no, you, you need Sarah uh, Lazen. Uh, I mean, she's the rock and roll book 
agent. So I sent her the book, and she said, of course, you know, and, and she immediately wrote, you know, she read it and immediately wrote back and said, yes, I want this, but, you know, you understand, I work alone. I, I, mean, I said, I understand. So I, I, well, I didn't sleep well that night. <laughs> and I, uh, by the time I'd heard from her, it was late in the afternoon. I couldn't, like, do it immediately, right? So I, um, uh, I you know, finally I get up at 7 in the morning and call New York and tell them, I'm going to, we're going to make a change, right? <laughs> Um, and, um, and thank you for all your efforts. Expecting, expe I expected to be guilt tripped. I don't know, you know, what wow. I was expecting. I mean, you know, as I say, and he meant, I understand, you know, where do I send the, the manuscript? Uh, you know, it was like, he knew. I mean, he had, he had the book six months ago. Oh, well, good, good. Now, here's the punchline to that story. <laughs> From that moment, in three weeks, I had a six figure contract. I had taken 11 meetings. Uh, Sarah Lazen, it was like, Shazam, mm -hmm. because she knew what she, totally knew what she was doing, and the great and the, the wonderful thing about it was that um, uh, in I I mean I met with eleven editors, mm -hmm. and uh, it was an auction. It was you know I was like the flavor of the month for a week, um, and um, in the course of the, those meetings, I met there was I came out of one meeting going I want him, and um, uh, the. Final result was not only uh, did he uh, he made the largest bid, <laughs> which made it so it really worked out easy. great. <laughs> no, I was prepared to take yeah, much yeah. less money if I could, you know, yeah. um, get what you I, wanted. If, if right. I could get him, but anyway, it turned out uh, that I got my cake and eat it too. Uh, mm -hmm. He was a, mm -hmm. Jerry Howard is his name, and he was a wonderful editor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, we've we've talked a little bit about how the music has continued on. So this book came out in 2001, I think, uh, Two. uh, 2002 Two. is the original mm -hmm. original printing. Mm -hmm. So um, do you think it's time for a volume two, the continuing adventures of trips longer and stranger? Uh, well, Joel Selvin um, did a yeah, book he just about did one. the yep. Grateful Dead, you know, the, the band Fare itself, well, right. mm -hmm. uh, uh, leading up to the Fairly Well shows. Um, anyway, the answer is, uh, maybe so, but it's not going to be by me. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, no, I've, I've, I work in the Grateful Dead world as a publicist, um, but as a, as a writer, I've said what You've I had, had to your say, say about the Grateful right, Dead. Right. And, you know, no, nobody yeah. needs to hear me go droning on. <laughs> no, no, I. Not true. I, uh, I, at any rate, I, I feel no inclination. Um, right. Um, it's, it's someone else's story. It's a fascinating story. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's. It's a wider story, um, and with all due respect to Joel, uh, who's, who's, you know, did, uh, I think, a, a good job of, of talking about, a very good oh, job that of book, Altamont, yeah. mm -hmm. but also of telling the story of the band, the GD mm -hmm. band members. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the politics. And, but but uh, not yeah. the... You know the emergence of all these cover bands and J Rad. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if, to go back to J Rad for instance. You know, I don't know if you're aware of it, uh, but um, the first time that they did this, it was a one-off. They had no plans. Yeah, to it do was a just a jam. Huh? <laughs> it, well, it, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not sure. I've, I've heard the story, and I'm not, I, I don't have the details. But it was to the effect of they had a date, they had to play. And for whatever reason, it became, yeah, let's, let's play Grateful Dead tunes. Mm -hmm. 
And the audience went so bananas that, you know, that's 400 shows later. Um, and they're, you know, that that's what they do now. And, and it's, you know, they do it. It's a living. It's, it's well, it's beyond, but it's, it's, <laughs> well, you know, and of course Joe had, I mean, he had drummed with in further. And, and so he had those connections, but um, I don't think he expected his life, to, his musical life to turn out the way it did. Right. But, right. you know, he, he enjoys it. He enjoys playing the music as a lot of people all of do. them do yeah. Yeah. virtually. I yeah. don't know of anybody that's complaining about playing this music. Mm -mm. Um, and, um, yeah. Well, it's so open. I mean, there's so much you can do with it. I mean, you know, the originators themselves made it to be, uh, uh, to, to constantly evolve. They did it themselves. So it's all there. Yep. You, you know, you, you're just, and, and you have an audience that understands and expects that anyway. So you can make it your own. Uh, so it's an interesting dynamic that you can do. You don't have to, it's not like uh, being in a Beatles tribute band where you you know have to no, dress no. up like the sergeant pepper guys and you know do the three acts of the of the the beatles or something like that yeah, you yeah. you can completely reinvent it uh, out there so all right switching gears because <clears throat> you did bring up your lovely wife Susanna millman um i have to bring up that uh, not only living uh, a rock and roll life um as an as an insider with a PhD, I might add, but being in a family of rock and rollers by marrying the fabulous uh, Mamarazzi uh, photographer. So, you know, how does a couple work like that? I mean, you know, you got words and images. Well, you know, we have a very clear division of labor. Um, you know, literally, I mean, for the Grateful Dead book and, and, and my next book on Highway 61, um, I, um, I, you know, I just said, you deal, you, you deal with the pictures. Um, and, you know, I'd gather them up and, and she'd think, you know, lay, do the layout and the, the whatnot. Um, uh, you know, it was generally, it was, it was just, it was very easy that, uh, that uh, you know, she took, she, she, Susanna is always happiest behind a camera. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so... Uh, she would, you know, come in with these great pictures, and uh, I would, uh, I would enjoy them. And working on the book, you know, the, her book. She finally got around to like, oh, beautiful, organized, book. yeah, um, and and put together this wonderful book. And um, I, you know, I, I did like two little essays, and I was responsible for the punctuation. And that's it, you know. She she had also she had a partner who was a fantastic designer. Um, yeah, that's a beautiful uh, Don book. Password, mm -hmm. uh, who I might add is also the bass player in a dead cover band. <laughs> so <laughs> and the know, beat goes on. <laughs> he, the beat really goes on, and um, and uh, yeah. No. Oh. All right, all right. Uh, uh, so I want to bring up some of the other work that you do as well. You're on the board of directors uh, for the San Francisco Zen Center uh, and chairman of the Developmental Committee for the ACLU of Northern California. So uh, tell us about working at these two places. Uh, well, I was chair of development. I'm still on the development committee at ACLU. Um, uh, what happened was that when the when Rex Foundation started getting going, mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, anybody in the company could put in a suggestion. Yeah, let's tell everybody who the, the, the Rex okay. Foundation Rex Foundation is. Yeah. was named after Donald Rex Jackson, yeah, one of the who, was, um, who was um, roadie and actually a road manager at one point um, for, for the band. One of the guys from Pendleton, Oregon. 
And um, so when they started a foundation, which was in the early 80s, or middle, middle 80s, they, uh, they named it after Rex. Yeah, he had recently passed away, if I remember right. Uh, well, uh, sometime before, but yeah, he had, he had been in a car accident. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so two or three times, I said, you know, how about giving money to the ACLU? And that, that, everybody agreed with that. And so um, actually, in 1995, um, I got a phone call from them. I don't know, they'd given two or three times. And I got a phone call uh, asking me to, to uh, come to the ACLU office and uh, you know, do a picture of presenting the check um, for their newspaper. And I said, sure. And we got to talking. And a little while later, they asked me to join the board. And a very little while later, I think, if I recall correctly, I'm a little fuzzy, this somewhat traumatic time. Um, this was just before uh, my first meeting. I think it was my second meeting, come to think of it. But very early on in the process, Jerry died. Mm. And I said to them, look, you know, I don't know. Presumably, because I certainly don't have the kind of money that, that the Rex was, was able to give them, uh, which wasn't huge, but uh, I mean, at the time it was a respectable chunk, 5000 or $10,000. And uh, I said, if you want to change your mind about me being on the board now, you know, it's okay. I mean, I'm not going to feel, you know, offended. And they said, no, 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 you know, there's, there's reasons. So I've been part of, of that for... Uh, 25, what, years, 25 years. Almost 20, years. Yeah, 25 years. Wow. Um, it's been a, a, a critical... I mean, I've always been a, a member and, and a supporter of ACLU, so mm-hmm. that's a very important uh, thing for me. Um, and the Zen Center. And the Zen Center... Well, what happened was when I stopped working for Weir, um, in, uh, when, when Bobby put a rat dog to bed and um, went out with Further, uh, and I stopped working there, um, I... Um, I needed, I needed a new family, is what, you know, people uh, uh, sort of from the outside, but they were kind of correct. Um, I literally uh, had a conversation with Susanna, and we said, all right, um, rather than freak out about this, because uh, it was abrupt, um, I said, um, uh, what are we not doing? This is, let's look at this as an opera, you know, all those cliches let's look at it one door closes another door opens right? <laughs> um, right, right and you know let's look at this as an opportunity and and I might add that that it was remarkably I didn't I didn't freak out the way I thought I would have um, uh, when Jerry was ill in 86 I got laid off and then I freaked out well in 86 it was all new you you were still kind of new I was still the new, new guy and, and that's yeah, why I got yeah, laid off yeah. and and yeah and it was all you know um, I'll tell you a funny story I, you know in 86 so I in 86 I got laid off in 92 when Jerry got ill again um, I got called into a meeting and uh, instead of um, being laid off I was getting asked for advice about oh what, what should we do right now you know how do we handle this and blah 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 so my People had come. To Obviously, me. your your Trust stock me, had uh, risen. My stock had risen, <laughs> and um, and you know, and then the next time I got called into a room, or actually I walked into the room, was uh, in '95. Um, 
the band members were all sitting in a room, so each looking as though, um, uh, won't do that anymore. Uh, each band member was sit sitting in this office, you know, looking as though somebody had just clubbed them. Um, and um, I had called a press conference for, for noon, and we literally, I mean, the neighborhood had TV trucks. I don't know how many people were there, but it was... Oh, it was... It was a big deal. Giant news. And um, I looked around the room. I said, anybody want to come out and join me in, you know, in the, for this? And they, they all went, no, no, you, you, <laughs> you got, got it. it. <laughs> you got it. So it's like, okay, thanks, guys. Um, not that I blame them. Um, but what was your original question? Oh, well, um, uh, basically, I asked about the Zen, Zen, <laughs> oh, the Zen, Zen Center, and, and basically Rat That's Dog had ended, and right. you were, you so were yeah. I, um, so I, I literally, I, I, Suzanne and I said, you know, what are we not doing that we should be doing that we, you know, it's, and uh, Suzanne, and I, I think she said it, uh, she had meditated a bit in the past uh, in various uh, traditions. Um, and she said, we both, whatever it was, we concluded within seconds, meditation. Mm -hmm. And I went, okay, uh, how about the Zen Center? I mean, it's 10 minutes from our house and, and so forth. Um, and we went and I've never left. I've been I, there I, ever since. I've been there and ever since. And it is a community. I, you know, I got deeply, uh, I, you know, it, 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 there's a community there um, and there's a religious practice, spiritual practice. Um, and uh, you know I'm, I, I work I volunteer in the bookstore and I, I help cook Saturday lunch and do this and that, so uh, I as I say I, I went off to the Zen Center and yeah. it's yeah. been uh, an essential part of my life ever since. Yeah. So you've been there for about twenty years and uh, uh, now, God, twelve, thirteen. Twelve. Oh yeah, I guess yeah. it was two thousand six when Rat Dog kind of eight. Eight. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so uh, we're getting to the end here. Uh, yeah. Just want to get your. We've talked a, a lot about this. This is we wove throughout our conversation, uh, and it's about uh, this counterculture. Um, you know, is it still alive and well in this Trumpian world we now live in? Uh, and you know, I mean, I guess the the long and short of it is is that you know I can almost tell somebody's politics by whether you agree with what happened in the 60s or you disagree with what happened in the 60s so you know it is is this counterculture winning the war or are we in dangerous territory for the future for those craving this sort of counterculture bohemian type of lifestyle in many ways i think the counterculture won the war um there was a great article i think it was a london paper um uh, you know were the hippies right um, and the answer in the article was yes, um, about in the environment, about you know, the, in How a to lot treat of people. lifestyle, uh, yeah. in a lot of lifestyle ways, um, the uh, the hippies won. For instance, if you eat organic food, you're an you're an heir to the '60s. If you do yoga or or pay any attention to anything in, in terms of Eastern religion. Um, if you make, if you think the EPA is supposed to be there to, to clean the water, not dirty it back up, um, then um, then you know clearly uh, you are part of the '60s, even though Nixon didn't start the EPA till '73. But that's another story. 
Um, it's it's it comes out of that impulse. It does. Um, with Trump as president and with him being avowedly, um, I may have said this uh, uh, earlier, and if if I'm being repetitious, I apologize. There's sort of two kinds of freedom in this country. Um, there's always been uh, the freedom to make as much money as you possibly can, mm -hmm. which obviously our glorious uh, leader in his great and unmatched wisdom um, <laughs> um, espouses. And there's freedom of thought and, and uh, among other things, that you know, for me is repre best represented by Thoreau. So in that sense, on, in many, many ways, in terms of lifestyle, um, the hippies, uh, what happened in the Haight-Ashbury is abs absolutely won. Now, do I think they're going to win? Unfortunately, I have a very um, uh, dire and dark um, point of view about uh, what it'll take um, to preserve uh, the environment um, of the planet in something resembling um, a positive way. Uh, and uh, that's going to take drastic uh, adjustments uh, of expectations uh, in terms of consumption um, that unfortunately most Americans are not prepared to make. No, not a sacrifice um, like that. Uh, and, and so that, frankly, I think we're, we're just in for, not me, I, I'm going to be gone, but um, by the end of this century, um, and my grandsons hopefully will still be with us or very, you know, uh, very close to the end of the century. Um, I think we're going to be in a living, you know, what's left of, Ameri of, of the human race will be living on a completely destroyed planet. Um, mm -hmm. The essential fact that no one has addressed uh, in, in, um, in many years is the earth is overpopulated, period. With humans. With humans. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they consume, uh, and that, you know, seven billion people, the earth is not equipped to handle this many people. No, not, certainly um, not living in a lifestyle that, 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 that a, the, a modern, the uh, modern expectation. Western, Western lifestyle. lifestyle right? um, and now um, you've just, in the last 20 years, added something close to a billion people mm -hmm. who are living that lifestyle, which is to say somewhere between five and six hundred million Indians and three to four hundred million Chinese people are now living Western lifestyles. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Yeah. Not for that man. Not, not, not those billion and the Western Europeans and, you know, the Americans and, and the North America and then, you know, those people in South America that, uh, and Africa and everywhere else that, that uh, can manage it, which mm -hmm. is more of a minority. Um, it's not sustainable. So is there an answer? Is Yeah, it's called zero population growth. It's right. called actually de population Decline. decrease. Yeah. Um, it's called um, uh, being willing to accept um, uh, that a lot of the expectations that now we take we, for granted, we take for granted, mm -hmm. s are simply untenable. Mm -hmm. You cannot have everyone 
um, riding around in their own car. And, and again, I'm not pointing the finger at Americans. It's happening in China now. And yeah. it's like, you know, uh, where, where uh, before before the, the, the smog was caused by, um, by uh, uh, or in India, was, they call them tuk-tuks, which are the yeah, little, little, little three-wheel mm-hmm. uh, Cushmans. The meter people uh, ride around it. Um, and, and those are, you know, environmentally, they, you know, those engines are like, you know, pollution machines. Um, but the problem is we've replaced, they're getting replaced by cars, which are individually better, but cumulatively, there's going to be so many of them. Um, again, the pollution and the just that. All I can I can say I can put it all in one word. Look at Brazil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look at what's what's going on in Brazil. There's a population that that, that wants to eat meat. Yeah, and so they're burning down the, the rainforest, rainforest to create grazeland, which is completely destructive because that land is not built, it's not, um, you know, the structure of the, the biochemistry of the land it, it's is not suited. Is for not, it, right? It's yeah. not going to sustain yeah. uh, long time um, cattle farming, and then it turns into what's called pan, which is just this hard baked crust. Uh, uh, with no nutrients left in it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I, I think you're right that, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the question is not environmentalism or climate change or deforestation or uh, uh, ocean acidification or species eradication, on and on and on. It's solely one issue, and that's too many humans. And, and the all planet. the other issues flow from it, yeah. and and the problem is um, that uh, as an ACLU member, um, am I? You know, what would I say if somebody who wanted to get slapped stood up in Congress and said, "Okay, I'm introducing a bill that limits every family to one child." That's not going to go over very well. It's not going to go over very well. It's not going to go over. It's not even it even in an authoritarian con- con- country like China, where everybody, um, um, you know, had to accept it. Um, it's failed there too. Yeah, they're you know they've gone. They're still authoritarian, alas, but they've gone capitalist enough. Um, the and the, the people that have got enough money, they're having more than one child, and and nobody's busting them. And I'm, I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying. Good luck with that. Mm-hmm. So no, I don't see, I don't see, an effective fix. Yeah, I see only um, the destruction of the planet. Well, I don't want to end on a bummer. Yeah, can here. We, yes, yes. So we're we... going to switch. Yeah, please. I, 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 my, my last question was going to be, but I think you've already dropped it on me here, and that's, uh, you know, what are you working on now? But I think you've got a new book that you are, uh, you're, you're finishing up here, right? Well, not finishing up. Oh God. No, I, I go slow. Um, um, I have uh, 15, uh, a list of books that I need to read that's 15 pages long. So it's not going to be any time too soon. But what I'm uh, working on, yeah, the, which really has me engaged and is really, uh, I'm having a ball. I hope anybody else, anybody else uh, uh, cares or uh, you know, enjoys it as much as I am enjoying the process. 
but it's about basically it's the the deepest roots of the Haight Ashbury. Um, starts in the late 1940s with avant-garde uh, culture, poets, mm-hmm. painting, theater, um, and what moves. we regard as the beats. Well, pre-beats, even so before the beats, to the beats, and then okay. the beats, uh-huh. and and. Uh, and then um, a lot of other, you know, avant-garde artists in uh, in various forms. Whether it was um, there was these amazing concerts in um, the Planetarium in, um, in in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco called the Vortex Concerts uh, by a guy named Jordan Belson, who was a filmmaker, and a guy named Henry Jacobs, who was Sandy, commonly called Sandy. Who was a um, off the you know really strange uh, a recording engineer, but and then a composer and a, into into weird electronica. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in the nineteen forties, fifties. No, okay, 50, early fifties, fifty-seven okay. and fifty-eight. Oh, later fifties. Right? Um, and they did these vortex concerts, and and I mean, so like talking, theremins and so, things like that. Uh, strange uh, stuff, uh, and and. Um, the music was all you know pre-taped because uh, you know, there's no place to put uh, players, um, but within the and it literally it 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 pre-told the story of the light shows mm-hmm. and the the connection and what happened in the '60s in terms of a combination of rock and loud rock. I mean, they had 36 speakers, which you know in 1950s is you know, so very it was a, a, like a sensory kind of assault that you, total, you get in a rock all, uh, concert all you out. get the lighting the show uh, in a uh, under the dome of a planetarium okay all okay. that and it it predicted everything that happened in the 60s wow and so that's one element okay and there's a you know there's a theater group that, that introduced Godot to uh, to North America mm-hmm. and Pinter um, and out of that came all kinds of came among other things the San Francisco mime troupe, yeah, yeah, which yeah. led to Bill Graham, Bill Graham, all, all and, you know, and yeah. uh, so it's a yeah. it's a great yeah. twisty story uh, with lots of characters uh-huh. and um, mostly and San Francisco as a character. The focus <laughs> will be San Francisco, although in fact, um, to tell the story properly, I've got to include L.A. and New York and uh, and London mm-hmm. um, as to and then it all ends at Monterey Pop. It all comes to, I, sh- I shouldn't yeah. say end, it all comes together at Monterey Pop. 67, right. And, uh, you know, there's this image of the uh, of the 60s in San Francisco as, you know, people with flowers in their hair and tripping and listening to wonderful music. And for at least three days, that was true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, do you have a title yet? No. Okay, all right. No, Still I Still working on it. Uh, that okay. one... At one point, it was going to be from Howl to the Hate, but... (laughs) Well, Dennis McNally, (laughs) thanks so much for being with us today on Deeper Digs and Rock. You're entirely welcome. My pleasure. Sometimes the light's all shining on me. Other times I can barely see.
Let's hear it for Dennis McNally. And if you haven't already, go out and grab any of Dennis's books. Um, go to our show notes on the website to find out where. Uh, of course, you can get them at wherever you uh, you find your good reads. I have to say, you know, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Dennis's book, Long Strange Trip. Um, while I was always looking forward while I was chasing my personal rock and roll dream, reading Dennis's book on The Grateful Dead made me realize that had I spent more time looking backwards, yeah, who knows, my life might have turned out very differently. So if any of you are looking to make a music career choice, uh, take it from me. Look into the past. Go back as far as you can. Learn everything that is available. All the lessons are there, and they will serve you well moving forward. Now, my personal motto is live in the present, know the past, and keep your eye on the future. Okay, so... Near the end uh, of the interview, both Dennis and I got a little dark on the future. Uh, we are both concerned uh, uh, about the future of this planet and the people living on it, uh, as everyone should be. Well, for everyone who believes in science, that is. If you listen closely, um, both Dennis and I went far beyond the climate change issue. Certainly, that is the national conversation. Uh, climate change, global warming, whatever you want to call it, is real and is causing global change that will affect all of us living down here on planet Earth. But what Dennis and I agree on and should be discussed more is that climate change is but a symptom along with mass species extinction, deforestation, ocean acidification, natural resource depletion, hell, even freshwater availability. Our mutual point is that keeping the focus on just a symptom, even if that symptom is the most obvious and most pressing issue, belies the fact of the singular overall cause. So solving a single problem facing us will end up just being too little too late. The very real and obvious cause in all of the above-mentioned symptoms is human overpopulation. There are just too damn many of us, especially if everyone wants to ha live a first-world lifestyle. And given the ease of access in just about everyone's palm these days to what living a first-world existence would be like, most not living what I might call the American lifestyle are now demanding to do so. Seven plus billion humans living like that just won't play. It's an impossibility. Not here on Mother Earth with her limited 197 million square miles of total surface area. Therefore, that is the real problem. Too many people. And let me leave you with this. If we as a species don't address this singular cause and act ourselves. Mother Nature will bite back, and if she does, there will be only the ungrateful dead. <laughs> yeah, you just knew I had to say that, right? Look into it for yourselves, okay? And get back to me if you want. Maybe Dennis and I are wrong. Again, not to be a bummer, but truth is truth. And we went down that road, and I felt like we should discuss it here at the end. 
you know, we can still party like it's 1999, except fate as Mother Nature wants to deal it out. Uh, but why? Since that just won't work out for us. Okay, so I made the mistake of announcing that we were having Holly George Warren this week, and I mixed that up that we had Dennis on the docket, so my bad. Uh, but next week, we will be having Holly George Warren, where uh, she and I have this great conversation on her new book, Janice, Her Life and Music. Hey, have a great week, and as always, keep up the rockin'. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. Hey, this is Joe. And Ryan. From the Highway High Five Podcast. The history of rock music is littered with forgotten weirdos, eccentrics, and scoundrels. Highway High Five is an examination of the lesser known but equally vital aspects of music over the past hundred years or so through its most enduring medium, the vinyl record. We cover records that were made for plants, truck driving country songs, the mafia's ties to record bootlegging, the ill-fated turntables for cars, the Mexican Woodstock, Waffle House's record label, the murderous true crime roots of Stagger Lee, Leonard Nimoy's highly illogical folk albums, the flammability of the Butthole Surfers live shows, Serial box flexi disc, the strange byproducts of the American private press trend, and so much more. Using trivia, deep dives into history and context, interviews, and curios from our record collections, we go track by track through the underbelly of music history to locate the roots of the world's fascination with vinyl records. Check out Highway Hi Fi on all reputable podcatchers. We're a proud member of the Pantheon Music Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.